Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was the beginning with by Him was all things made, and without Him was not thing, anything made that was made. He was in the world. And the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. The beginning of the Gospel of John is the summary of the whole story that we are culminating mostly in this day, but it's not complete, obviously, without his descent into Hades and his glorious resurrection. But to make sense of these readings, and I don't know if we take them as solemnly enough as we ought. of our Lord was to renew everything that he had created that had gone wrong. In a sense, a poison had entered in the fall of man that brought to death and destruction everything in creation. Everything we ate was spoiled. Everything we did was spoiled. Everything was in the context of decay, of rot, of mortality, of death. And our God was coming to make things new. And nobody understood it or they would have stopped what they were doing. Even Pilate makes an intercession which is out of character. It was one of the most bizarre days because everyone is communing together to kill the man. At the same time, the unlikely people are also defending him. When Pilate presents Christ and he says, Behold the man, or in modern English, look at him. What do you want? Look, he's he's already completely destroyed. But the Lord had accepted all of this in advance. We'll revisit again. Some of you were there last night. Forgive me if you're hearing this a second time. But we forget our narrative. We forget our story. And so we don't, we don't recognize the, the glory of Great Friday because we treat it as just a random day where there's a gory image of Christ up and we cry a little bit and we go home and eat palmeya and wait for the feasting tomorrow night. But in the beginning, as St. John alludes to, when God created heaven and earth, another way of reading that first line in its own language is saying, when the beginning began, putting Christ automatically outside of time. Saying when, when the beginning began, when there was before creation, we had Christ. And Christ was the word by whom the Father created. The God spoke and his word created. And the word was God. 
And he created heaven and the earth and the sea, and all these are the things that we were reading throughout the morning, Paschas, throughout the entire week, for man. Right? They were not, it wasn't a random creation. It wasn't because he was bored. There wasn't a, some movie he was trying to play out in his mind. He made it for man, and he gave man dominion over the whole earth and said, name it. In naming it, he's giving man his dominion over it. I was saying, this is yours, whatever you want. Call it whatever you want. And he made man different than all the rest because he gave something uniquely to man that he didn't give the rest of the creation, which was his own self, his own DNA, his image and likeness. This is the thing which even the angels didn't receive. Even Lucifer, the highest of creation, didn't receive this. There's even some traditions that it was for this reason that Lucifer hates us so much. I'm saying, how could you give humanity your very self and not me? And yet, within no time, we didn't recognize the goodness of God. And in no time, literally within days, at the first provocation of saying, are you sure your God is as good as he says, man fell. Right? The woman beheld the fruit and said, hey, I'm not supposed to have that. And the response is, why? Are you sure that the day that you eat of this, you're really going to die? Or is the real issue your God is not that good? Is the real issue that your God doesn't want you to know what he knows or be like he is? Which if they had thought about it, the very fact that they're in the image and likeness of God and able to even process those thoughts was because he let them think, was because he gave them his image and likeness. And within no time, again, we have brothers murdering brothers. We have violence, right? We have murder, which is, it seems, the provocation for the flood. And we were quick to walk away. And God didn't forsake his people even when they left the garden. The conversation didn't end. Right? It's not like God went into his corner and stopped interacting with humanity. He was continually interacting with humanity. And after these reboots with the flood, the control all deletes of history, right? humanity still went its own way. And God was putting humanity saying, I made you different. I made you to be something. Could you please be it? And humanity continually said, we're not interested. We like material. We like stuff. And so God searched out of humanity saying, is there anybody is there anybody interested at all in any remote way, even a tiny fraction, to be what you're meant to be? And the only one who fit the bill on any level was Abraham. And and God was forced into something he didn't want. God didn't want a deal with a particular people. If he did, he would have made only a particular people from the beginning. This was a forcing of God's hand saying, is there anybody? And he says, okay, here's a group. And so he makes a covenant with Abraham and says, I will be your God and you will be my people if all I'm asking from you is be what you were designed to be. That's all I'm asking. And I will hook you up. You like stuff? 
even though the world isn't meant to just be stuff, I'll give you stuff. You want to be successful, you'll be successful. Right? You want to win your, I'll let you win your wars. I'm not about that, but I'll do it. Right? If that's the language that you understand, I will also speak in your language that you understand, but first and foremost, please, put on the image and likeness of God. Said differently, seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. And it didn't take very long for even the special people to be not interested. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob had major family problems, right? His kids did all sorts of messed up things. Among them, and not the least of them, was throwing the second youngest in a pit and selling him to the Egyptians, where even after a successful period, the the Jews were then enslaved. And by then, all they had was to mumble and grumble and complain about their God. And when God raises up Moses to say them, all these are things that we've been reading throughout the week, in this dramatic rescue from Egypt, the ten plagues that we read about, that culminated in the last of them being the great Passover, where God slays the firstborn of all of them and tells the Jews to do a particular thing, which was to kill a pure, unspotted lamb, put the blood on the lintel, and to stand, eating it, standing up, with their belts girded, ready to go. And he initiates for them this great rescue, where because of the blood of this lamb, the people were spared. They were passed over by death because of this blood. And this dramatic scene of going through and flight from the greatest superpower of the world at the time, right? Crossing through open seas, which is not normal to me, and maybe it is to you, but it's not normal in most world history. And yet within no time, what are they complaining about? Did you bring us here to kill us? There's no food. There's no water. What is this? Worthless is the word that was used. Food that you're putting for us. Nobody was content with God. Everything he just wants more and more stuff. And they forgot who they're meant to be because all they cared about was the stuff. And even when Moses went up to the mountain because the people were like, I don't even know what it means to be holy. I don't even know what it means to be in the image and likeness. So God's like, I'll, I'll write it out for you. I'll keep it very simple. right? And even in that journey of going up the mountain... These people who had taken the gold, they plundered their captors, right? They took all the gold of the Egyptians that they could get. And what did they do with it? Let's build a new idol. Let's worship a cow. Because apparently that's logical. Why? We like stuff. We like physical things, things we can touch and feel and that we can do. We don't like God as he is, as God is spirit. But God delivers them the covenant. And Moses, if you can picture this scene as we've read through this week at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, when they're ready to inherit this promised land where they're getting their stuff. You're going to get you the milk and honey and crops and everything you wanted. Now you, you get you get your own kingdom. You're not going to wander. All this is over. And he says to them, all of this, if you just keep 
the covenant. And the people say to him, yeah, everything you said will do. And Moses replies, no, you won't. No, you won't. And indeed, no, they didn't. And God first raised up for them judges, right, to tell them what the word of God is. And they didn't like the judges because the judges didn't have enough bling. They wanted the bling of the world. They wanted the show, the, 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 the theatrics, the chariots, the look. And so what did they say to God? We want a king. Yeah, 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 you're king, we get it. But like, we want like a king, right? You get it, you know what I mean, right? This is, this is what they're saying to God. And Samuel, the prophet, right? Because when they were sick of their judges, God sent them prophets, right? Then Samuel, the last judge, tries to defend God, and, and God is like, Park yourself. I got this. Don't worry about it. You're not the one who's going to defend my honor. They want a king. Have a king. Have your king. Just please keep the covenant. Please be who you're meant to be. That's all I'm asking you. I'm not asking for anything. I'm not asking for your money. I gave you the money. right? I'm not asking you for anything. I'm just giving. All I'm asking is the whole basis of what you are is this thing that we agreed on. Could you please be it? And they didn't. Right? Within no time, they had... I mean, Saul was Saul. We had one great righteous king, and he was the last one for a really long time. And no one came even remotely close to him later. They had their civil war. You had a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom, and they were fighting with each other. They were making alliances with their enemies against one another, and the whole thing was falling apart. But in the beginning of all of this, the people did something that we also do today. With good intentions to start with, King David says, Lord, how can it be that I live in a luxurious palace and you live in tents? This is what was meant when St. John says the word became flesh and the actual word is tabernacled with us, which is tented with us, which is camped with us. Because the Dubar, the Logos, the word of God in the Old Testament, and we are going to connect him in a moment to Christ, went around to them in tents. And David said, let's build you a palace. And the Lord God knew what was going to happen when they built God a palace. And he said, you know what, David, how about you just raise the funds and your son can do it? Almost as if to not impute to the righteous David the disaster that would be the temple. Because once they built the temple, we put God into this box that you're in right now. We do God in church. Right? We'll do all of our religious stuff in that building. God can live in that building. And we want to do the stuff that God likes. We'll go chill with him in that house. And outside of that house, we do the world. And the place that was meant to be a place of holiness became one of the darkest places. The place that was supposed to illuminate all of the people became the place that darkness spread from. And we see this in God's interaction when the Logos became flesh. The Logos in Aramaic is Dubar. Before I go to that, 
The Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies, and the Holy of Holies was called the Dubar, the Logos, because it was from there that God would speak. After the Jews were taken away captive to Babylon and returned, and the temple had been completely savaged, they returned to find that the Ark of the Covenant was gone, and that in the place of the speaking place of God was just a concrete slab with two statues of an angel on either side announcing nothing. For 400 years, they did not hear the word of God. For 400 years, there was no prophet that arose. John the Baptist was the first to break that. And so it's not a coincidence when John is announcing Christ as the Logos, as the Dubar, of saying, Behold the mouthpiece, the mind of God, the word of God, the thought of God, is now here and present in your midst. Because what the people didn't understand was that they had a death problem, they had an identity problem. They thought they had a political problem. They thought they had a financial problem. They wanted a solution where somebody was going to come and rebuild their temple and make them rich again and give them back their stuff. What they didn't understand is that there was somebody who was coming to give them back their identity. There was somebody that was coming to give them back the gift of immortality and the gift of incorruption because the world was made for men. Men were not made for the world. Until then, they had been using vaccines, if you will, random symptomatic medications to deal with their death problems. But what God was coming to give was His very blood, was to give us a cure from our problem. And what we did was take our solution and put Him on trial. And that's what we've been reading about for the last five or six hours. Humanity took their God and put their God on trial. First he was taken, first he was in the trial of the public already, but he was in trial first by Annas, the former high priest, then his son-in-law Caiaphas, then to Pilate, who sends him back to Herod, who sends him back to Pilate, and we're tired after six hours not recognizing that for God, this started yesterday at about 3 or 4 in the afternoon and he went through the entire night and did not sleep and went through these trials, then was held in a prison in the in-between the trials, beaten, wounded, savage, whipped, mocked, jeered, thrust to the side, completely physically and utterly annihilated in all of this time that we're sitting and reading and singing a few hymns. And if the Lord came today, he'd be a social media event for sure. And we would put him on the same trials that they put him on. And the show would be great. And everybody would be dying to do exactly what they did to him in his time. What is your stance on? Because everybody wants to crucify the celebrity. They... The public, are you wanting us to be loyal to Caesar or not? 
are you a socialist? Are you a capitalist? Right? This would be in the modern question. What's your stance on gender? We saw that you went to a gala with so-and-so and people flew you there. Why? Just like they were. We saw you in Simon's house. Why? You were in Zacchaeus' house. Why? To some, they're mad he's with the Pharisee. To others, he's mad he's with the sinner. How can we, see, how can we trust you? We've seen you be nice to both Democrats and Republicans. What's your stance on Israel? Is Russia wrong? And once his answer is not the same as your answer, you throw him out. We wouldn't ask, are you right? We'd say, he's not one of us. He doesn't like our stuff. That would have been Caesar's trial. And the church trial is even worse because it's so pretentious. Why did you break your fast on Wednesday and Friday when you went out with that sinner? There's no way you're from God if you broke that. You laughed and joked and were nice to people that are not in good standing with the church. What do you mean by that? You openly expressed that something could possibly be administratively or socially wrong within the institution. Who do you think you are? And then on a lay level... You're not tough enough on our leaders. Can't be real, by some. And by others, you're not in full agreement with our leaders. You can't be real. There'd be no winning. We would, like they did in the trial today, say, give us Barabbas. And the irony of that name. Barabbas means the son of the father. And we said, we want the fake son of the father. We, we don't want the real one. The people just didn't get it. We just don't get it. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. We couldn't see it was him because we're blinded by us. Not once did he do a single thing wrong. But we found a way to call him wrong. Why? We don't like mirrors. And we stand in front of him. We are standing in front of a mirror because we're supposed to be him. Who is this who comes from Edom with red garments from Basra? It's Christ, whom we call King. And creation put it upside down. Instead of being in his image and likeness, we want him to be in ours. We want him to be diseased. We want him to be subject to what we think is our creation, as though we were the creators, and our vanity, and we want him subject to our rules. We're blind. And so were they. We are everyone who went wrong in the story. We don't want life, we want death. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, the would-be disciples asked the Lord, Where do you live? And they asked him this, hoping to be invited over, because if you become a disciple, the tradition of the time was you would go live with that person to be instructed by them. It wasn't just a, I'll meet up with you once a week and talk. It was, I will now live with you. So they're asking this question, hoping that he's going to say, 
come with me and abide with me. But the question was asked right after John had already said where the Son lives, that he lives in the bosom of the Father. That is where he comes from. Where do you come from? I come from the Father. But what they thought by asking where do you live was that they were going to encounter the world. But it wasn't. It was an encounter with God. But we who like death, that come and see is repeated by us one time in the gospel. The come and see expression is twice. The first time when Christ does it. And the second time is when the Lord asks, where is Lazarus? And they say, come and see. And they take him to a tomb of a rotting man. The world points at materialism and all material rots, decays, dies. The world points at death. They were blind, even the religious were blind to the foreshadowing. It was the plan from the very beginning. We saw it with Balaam, right? When Balaam went to stand and curse the Israelites on top of a hill, if you pay attention to the stuff that we find so boring in the Bible, which they were asked to be seated as blah, 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 if you pay attention to the how they were seated, they were seated in the sign of the cross. And that is why every time that Balaam opened his mouth to curse them, he could not, because the cross was being prefigured. Moses, who raised his head, his hands out, as we read earlier today, was a figure of the cross. The serpent being fastened to the wood, sin being fastened to the life-giving wood, became a source of life. The world wants death. The world wants gold and diamonds, elements that were created and that have no life. The world created cash. It's a human invention. Money is a human invention turning against the design of everything belonging to everyone. And the world made commodities out of everything. Water, entertainment, joy, image, food. Even personalities can be marketed now. And we buy it. We buy it, and we dare anyone to tell us that we're mistaken. We dare anyone to tell us that we're living a lie, and if they do, we are quick also to crucify them. Our Lord knew and knows all of this. He knew he'd be rejected, but that didn't stop him from his rescue. He saw that we were dying of our own diseases and our own insanity. And this didn't, determine, didn't deter him. It compelled him. He lived to die in order to live so that we could live abundantly. He endured the fickleness of his friends the ridicule of the Old Testament church, the suspicion of the Romans. He accepted even the rejection of himself by his earthly family, his relatives who didn't believe him and mocked him and even wanted him killed. Boldly he proclaimed righteousness, showing us how to live and living among us. He frequented tax collectors, people of bad reputation, so-called sinners, he was on the road, walking with people, talking with people, smiling, laughing, consoling. When challenged, he spoke the truth. He spoke himself. And nobody could silence him because they had no answer. And this filled them with envy 
that he stole from their honor by not falling for their traps. It humiliated them that they fell into their own traps, as the psalm says. And so again we find ourselves back to the morning, back to the trials. Everyone who hated him without a cause joined together and created a cause. He's against us, was all that they could concoct. He's against God, he's against the temple, he's against Caesar, he's against Rome. The people were united in not wanting to be opposed, even if they were opposed by the truth himself. They preferred a lie. Jesus, the son of the father, was hated, but Barabbas, the son of the father, the imposter, was loved. Jesus, the true king, was mocked as being not a king, and he was mock-crowned. Jesus, who reigns from on high, was given a mock scepter. Jesus, who is loved, was hated. Our Lord Jesus was murdered by them, and when we live in that way, he is murdered by us. And very gently, from upon the cross, he pointed to his identity, inviting the people to identify himself when he led them with Psalm 22. The custom, the tradition, was that a person gives the first line of the psalm. You still see this in the monasteries today, when a person says the first line, because they didn't have chapters, they didn't have verses like we have today. So you started the words and the people followed. And he began by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if the people did what they ought and started reciting the psalm, they would have known who he was. They would have known that it was he, which is what the church sang twice today, when we say, this is he. This is he, beloved brethren, who offered himself for the salvation of the world who humiliated himself and in his humility showed what is greater than might. The power of God, the power of love incarnate to overcome hatred in the flesh by love. This is he who created the very earth that was groaning at this hour. This is he who appeared to Abraham and this is he who spared Abraham. This is he who delivered them from their enemies that they were now begging their enemies to kill. This is he who for us and for our salvation knew that we were sick with madness and took on the scorn of death, the whole of sin in his flesh to slay it eternally. This is he who would descend into Hades and ravage the dwelling place of Satan to redeem his people. This is he who sees past our disease and gives up his own self for his kids. No greater love is there than a man lay down his life for his friends, and he has called us his friends. What is our response to this love? Do we leave today on another commemoration of his sacrifice only to keep being a Pharisee or a Roman? Do you wag your head at him and say it's all a myth? Or do you become transformed by his love and take 
the power of his resurrection. You are meant to be he. Don't take vainly his work, in spite of the fact that we are indebted to sacrifice, he still always leaves the choice of your response to you. Do we keep looking for death? The woman who comes to the tomb in the morning see the same sign that happened when the temple was rent in twain. When the temple, when the veil of the temple was cut in two, the emptiness and death of the temple was exposed to all of humanity to see that there was nothing in there. No one was talking. And when they entered the tomb, they saw the exact same sight. Two angels with a concrete slab in between because humans have a thing for death. And Christ is pointing, saying, I, the grain of wheat, I am the word. I am the Dubar, I am the Logos, I am alive. Stop trying to find life and death. I am is the life. And to live life is really to die. To die to yourself and for others. Because this is the identity of God. This is the glory of God. It is love. It was his final prayer for us in the garden. The glory of humanity is love. The glory of God is love. If you are his disciple, you are called to deny yourself for others. If on this feast of his sacrifice, you are at enmity with anyone, then you are not living in his love. If we are to be as he is, we are called to reconcile with all who today reconciled us with the Father, who today laid down his life so that he could stand in front of us after the glorious resurrection and put his hand standing in front of his people saying, Father, forgive them they didn't know. I present to you your bride, my bride, once more whole and worthy of life. The timeless has entered time and the uncircumscript has allowed himself to be contained for the salvation of us all. Let us bow before him and worship him, our crucified God, our God who submitted himself to mortality and death for the life of the world. Hail to the cross. Hail to our crucified God. Hail to the King of kings. Death has been slain by him. Glory to him forever, age of ages.